Welcome back to Through the Looking Glass, a Lost Retrospective, our exploration of Lost's impact on television 15 years after the show debuted on September 22, 2004. I'm your host, Tara Bennett, a senior producer and podcast host for Sci-Fi Wire. And joining me for this adventure is esteemed critic Maureen Ryan. You know her work from the Chicago Tribune, Huffington Post, Variety, and now as a freelance writer for publications such as The New York Times and The Hollywood Reporter. Hello, Mo. Hello. So, in the last few weeks, we have had some terrific guests on this series tackling the topics of Lost's unique fandom, the would-be successors to Lost, the show's inspired transmedia, and how some of Lost writers were forever changed by the show. And for our big finale, we've had to go straight to the sources. Ending this series without getting the perspective of these two gentlemen and finding out Lost Legacy on them as writers and showrunners still making some of the most original television shows out there today would be like Locke letting someone tell him what to do. So we are beyond thrilled to welcome Lost co-creator, executive producer, and co-showrunner Damon Lindelof. Hi. And executive producer and co-showrunner Carlton Cuse. Aloha. Is it crazy that it's 15 years? Has that hit you earlier this year? We were just walking over here from Damon's office, and I was like, this is crazy. I mean, that was literally that, that what we were saying. we were saying. walking? That was both that yeah, we were walking yeah. in L.A. Our yeah. chauffeurs had the day off. <laughs> <laughs> we weren't bird scootering. Yeah. We were just walking. And no, it doesn't seem possible that it's been that long. For context for the audience, it's really been nine years since the Lost finale, but neither of you have taken it easy. Damon, you've written a lot of film screenplays, including Prometheus, Star Trek Into Darkness, Tomorrowland, and on the TV side, you co-created with Tom Parada The Leftovers for three seasons on HBO, a favorite of Miss Moe's here. And your next HBO series, Watchmen, drops on October 20th. And then, Carlton, you went on to executive produce and showrun six series, including Bates Motel, The Strain, Colony, of which I have a warmness in my heart for, and currently have Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan on Amazon Video and the upcoming Lock and Key on Netflix. Um, I think you both have a problem with resting, right? <laughs> Relaxation. <laughs> Keep moving until you drop, I guess. <laughs> Although I'm feeling very underaccomplished. <laughs> no, no, yeah. no, 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 no. Honestly, a show like Lost, a merciless broadcast pace, 121 episodes. When you came off of that show, where were you both mentally in terms of did television and coming right back into the grind feel like the right thing or absolutely the antithesis of what you wanted to do? I was exhausted and I didn't do anything for about six months, but recharged my batteries. I went on some trips. I had a wonderful hiking trip in Switzerland with my daughter and just hung out. And I had really no plan. I started developing some stuff and there's a high failure rate in television. And the weird result was that all these things I developed, they all went. So I ended up having multiple shows. (laughs) It was not a planned intention, (laughs) but I ended up kind of having this whole other experience. But in some ways, it was was certainly a lot less intense than Lost, probably because that was, you know, just our singular focus for six years. And we were working like 80 hours a week on the show. And ultimately, you know, working in the cable streaming world, you're spending massive amounts more time doing many fewer episodes. I mean, I spent three years making eight episodes of Jack Ryan yeah. after creating the show with Graham Rowland. And I can't believe that we actually made 24 episodes of Lost the first year, 23 the second, right. 22 the third, and so on. Yeah, I just spent more or less the last two years of my life making nine episodes of Watchmen. 
And I feel like if you would ask me to make a 10th, I would drop dead and die. Yeah. And so I was just telling Carlton, my 13-year-old son is watching Lost for the first time. And my wife is doing her first rewatch. Oh. And so they watch the show typically between like five and six at night. So I'm not home yet, but I'll come home just as they're like ending. And sometimes they'll watch like a second episode. So I'm kind of floating in and out. And they're midway through the second season. So Ben Linus is about to get caught in Rousseau's trap. Nice. And I watch the show like someone else made it sometimes. Like I'm like, what? And then other times I'm like, I remember exactly when Eddie pitched this pearly <laughs> joke. And there's Mr. Echo stick. I remember the conversations that we had with Adewale about this stick. And so all these things that I think that I forgot are actually sort of lodged in some part of my brain. As for how I was feeling when it was all over, I mean, I wouldn't say struggle with, but I still think about this now, 15 years later, or as you say, nine years after the finale, which is if you would ask me what my life's ambition was, like set a very lofty goal for yourself when I was, you know, 25 years old. What I would have said is, I want to make a show like The X-Files, or I want to make a show like Twin Peaks, something that has staying power, that is weird and strange, and is sort of like a reflection of all the things that I loved through this entirely new lens. And it would be cool if some people watched it and that critics were into it. And that's kind of it. And Lost, I think, was so much more than that. Now, it came with, obviously, a lot of other things. But I think that when it was finished, all I could think of is like the worst mistake that I could ever make now in my career is to try to chase that again. Now I've been given this incredible gift, which is I was 30 when we shot the pilot. So I was 36 or 37 and I was like, I've achieved my goal. So now I should only really chase things that are creatively super duper fulfilling for me. Mm -hmm. And so my mission statement was if loss has afforded me anything, it's the ability now to work with my idols, the people who inspired me. And so the first call that I got I always picture you wearing later hosen when you're hiking <laughs> through Switzerland. Switzerland. Like, I wasn't you, though. You know, that's you, uh, like just stopping that's a, by, that's, like that's, let him that's have a falsehood. That. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, not, okay. Not true, I, but. It's true that I picture you that way. It's just not. But in any case, my. If you family, want to go hiking in Switzerland, I'll put on some later hosen. That's a different podcast. <laughs> um, my family went to Italy for like a month, and we were completely and totally kind of off social media, and then we came back. And I know that we're not going to get into a big meta conversation about the finale, but when I got back, it felt like it was an unmitigated win because we got all these Emmy nominations. The finale itself was nominated for writing in the show, which was not always nominated as series, was nominated in its final year. And we won the TCA awards and Carlton wasn't able to make it to the TCA awards. He was still traveling. I remember that, yeah. And I like gave this speech where I read tweets that were dragging the finale <laughs> and Tom Hanks was sitting in the front row like <laughs> it was the year of John Adams and he was right. cackling and I was like... Like, this is like an unmitigated win. Yes. And I'm just going to retire, not do anything. And then I got a call from my agent that was basically like, Ridley Scott's going to call you in five minutes. Like, where are you? And I feel like I never chose to do Prometheus. It was just like, (laughs) I'm taking that call. And when you take that call, then you're just in. And so (laughs) I was kind of in movieville for a while, but I really miss television. I mean, this is no dig on movies. There's a lot of excellent movies out there, but I feel like I'm better at TV than I am at movies because I like the larger camera canvas, but 121 pieces of canvas, (laughs) a bit too large. I guess we've done together and in collaboration with a lot of incredible other artists, we've done our Sistine Chapel. I will never, ever try to do anything scaled like that again. 
Yeah, my metaphor for this was I remember when I was in high school, I fell in love with John Steinbeck and I read all of his books and everybody knows East of Eden and Grapes of Wrath. But there's also all these other books that are wonderful. And when it was done, there was very strong realization that this would probably be the thing that will be the first line of my obituary and it won't be displaced from that, you know, in terms of my professional accomplishments. And that was fine. I've really kind of the same thing. I've done the other things I've done because I like them, but I don't have any expectation that anything will ever be like that again. And that's totally great. Even the fact that I ended up doing multiple things at a time was a weird sort of product of circumstance rather than planning. Each of those were just ideas. It was like, oh, this is cool. I love storytelling and I love working at my craft of trying to become a better writer and producer and showrunner. And I fully recognize that some things may land more than others. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. I feel like the era we all lived through, through Lost, was the rise of the showrunner as a public figure. As critics, I don't think we necessarily expected it. We certainly fed it. But what was it like to live through that, looking back on it now with some clarity? (laughs) It was crazy. I mean, it's surreal to me to look back and think that Damon and I were guests on the Jimmy Kimmel show, (laughs) like on the couch twice, sitting next to like Terrence Howard. We did like a skit with Bob Newhart. (laughs) Yeah. That's a thing that happened. You and I were in a bed together in pajamas on national television. We read the top 10 list on Letterman. Yes, that's the dream. It was just, by the end, it was truly surreal and crazy. And again, you know, we never had any expectation that we would be famous at all. I mean, we were just trying to make our show. And in fact, kind of the one break that we had from the rigors of making the show was when we would do our podcast, which was actually so fun for us. It was like this hour of levity in the middle of whatever the week's crisis was of making the show. An island of tranquility. It was an island of tranquility. (laughs) Exactly. It was just this thing that arose that we never had any expectation would happen. But you're right. That was really kind of when it started. I mean, I think people knew maybe Stephen Bochco before that, Mm -hmm. but... I think certainly inside nerd culture, like I knew who Joss was very well, and I knew who JJ was, both from Felicity and from Alias. And the Whedon team already had message boards and stuff like that, where you could go on and the writers, like Fury, would be on there. And so that thing was starting to happen. And certainly I knew who David Lynch was, and that was the first time that I saw a TV show where I was like, who makes this shit up? (laughs) And my dad was like, David Lynch... And Mark Frost, of course. Twin Peaks became kind of my gateway drug to, you know, Eraserhead and all of his movies. And maybe that was kind of a gateway, too, because David Lynch was a director who had a reputation. And directors were clearly auteurs and known. But Lost also had a broadcast platform. Not that J.J. didn't, but his shows still were kind of niche in a way. Alias was the one that broke, but then you guys came right after that. And then it was, you guys were the draws at your Comic-Con panels, your podcast. And we're talking about podcasts back then. People still had to explain what a podcast was (laughs) back then. Carlton will probably remember this, but I think that it's a funny anecdote that sort of speaks to what you're saying, which is, so in 2004, the year that we are now celebrating the anniversary of, there were actually three shows that premiered on ABC that season. Lost basically premieres on a Wednesday night, and we get the call on Thursday morning that we've broken all these records for drama viewing. It'd been like five or six years since Jimmy Smith's died on NYPD Blue or something (laughs) like that. We're like, holy shit, we broke the record. And then four days later, Desperate Housewives premieres, and it breaks our record. Mm -hmm. So we were like a kid that our parents wanted, but we were being outshone by Desperate Housewives. And I can say this now because he's no longer our boss, but Steve McPherson hated Lost and he loved Desperate Housewives. And both shows were nominated for a Golden Globe. They put Desperate up for a comedy and Lost up for drama. 
drama in that first year. I think the Golden Globes are in January or something. So we'd only shown like maybe eight or nine episodes. Carlton and I were not given tickets to sit on the floor with the actors. Oh my God. Uh, wow. JJ was down there with them, but we were with the ABC executives wow. sitting at Steve McPherson's table. And we were like, because we're taking our wives. And they're like, if you're taking your wives to the Golden Globes, then you don't get to sit with the popular kids. And we're like, well, we're taking our wives. <laughs> so we're sitting with Steve McPherson and a number of other executives. And so the drama series comes up and Lost does not win. We lost to like Nip Tuck or something like that that first year. And no one turns to us and says like, you'll get them next year. We are literally not acknowledged. And then Desperate Housewives wins comedy and they are like jumping up and down. McPherson is like chest bumping people, pouring champagne to us included. And the point that I'm trying to make (laughs) is that at the next year's upfront, which was, I guess, the following May, May, now lost is a thing. And we're finally going to get our due. And they bring us and the cast out and we're sort of like sitting there in the theater and all the lights go down. And all of a sudden a spotlight hits in the balcony and Mark Cherry is there (laughs) in in a tux and tails with one of those like Book of Mormon microphones. And he sings a beautifully choreographed, literally Broadway level number. He sings for five minutes. He dances out of the fucking balcony, (laughs) down onto the stage. Who knew? Like there's shirtless men coming out with ties and top hats. Yeah. I'm like, no, it was a full Broadway number. And it was Mark Cherry. And literally at the upfront, it's for advertisers. Right. The most cynical bunch. They are on their feet screaming. And I was like, Mark Cherry is the star of Desperate Housewives. I think what you said is we need to get a dance instructor. I think that's what I remember. Better choreographer. And now I hear great things about your tango. I was like, and I turned to Carlton and I said, we've got to get a podcast. (laughs) We can't do that. We can't dance, but we can podcast. We can talk. But it, it was a moment where I realized, oh, this is a transitional moment where the showrunner, Mark yeah. Cherry, is literally... And by the way, that was the story out of the ABC upfront. It wasn't, oh, look at these new shows. It was, oh my God, did you see what Mark Cherry did? And by the way, people weren't suddenly like, I'm going to pay more for ads on Desperate Housewives. No. Yep. It was done just for the sake of celebrating his celebrity. Wow. It was amazing. Honestly, that is the culture of the kind of swing where you suddenly now, it's not enough for you to make your show. Now you have to figure out how to be the personality behind the show. And damn you for being witty and fun about it. You guys were really sucked into that vortex because people enjoyed how you talked about your show and how you presented the creativity of the show. You suddenly have another job. Lost happened to emerge at the same time as social media emerged. Again, going back to these message boards, I mean, it was very crude at and the it was beginning. the height of the recap culture as well. Yep. Yeah. I mean, Bloggers. I remember very distinctly in the first season, there was this thing, the fuselage, which was a gathering place for fans. And Damon and I went with a bunch of the actors to this event at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel where yeah. members of the fuselage had decided to gather. I covered it. Yeah. And mm-hmm. what was crazy is that the people there were more interested in the writers than they were in the actors. And then there were romances that were happening between fans of the show. And it was like this seismic moment where television kind of started moving from something that was pushed out to you to being a two-way street, you know, and the internet was opening up this idea that culture was a two-way commodity. And of course, that's now reached its sort of apex with crazy fandom. And we started experiencing that at the very end of Lost. And now, of course, you know, you sort of see the extension of that with the show like Game of Thrones, where 
software, the desire to participate, I think, really exacerbates this whole idea of fan criticism and fan trolling. I'll also say that, you know, obviously there were shows like Star Trek, right, that had impassioned fandoms that were TV shows, but those fandoms didn't emerge until the show was off the air. Yes. I mean, obviously the fandom waged a letter writing campaign to keep Star Trek on the air, but we were dealing with this in real time. Right. And so I think that the idea was we're not just going to be ambassadors for the show, but I always thought about it in terms of I'm a sports fan. And one of the most excruciating things as a sports fan that you watch is like if the Dodgers lose a game, the losing pitch has to come out and take questions from the press. And if you've won, that's probably a lot of fun. But the losers have to do it too. The coach has to basically say, I'm going to answer your questions about how we lost the game. I'm just like, wow, why? Why do they have to do that? Right. And the answer is, is because people invest a lot of time and energy into that team and they want to know what's the thinking behind some of the decisions that were made. Mm -hmm. And so Carlton and I were the GMs and the coaches of loss. Right. People didn't want to just celebrate, but they also wanted to get under the hood of and also at times criticize. We had to get out there between like seasons two and three and basically say like, here's what we're doing, you know, always asking us questions about why do we never hear from any of the other characters other than the primary 14? Well, <laughs> in season three, you're going to meet some of those new characters. And people yeah, are like, see oh, what you think of that. Right. See if you love Nikki and Paolo. <laughs> gonna no, see how that right. goes for you. Yeah. No, but it's like people needed us to tell them what we were doing and why we were doing it. And I don't think the show would have survived as long if we just said, no, we're above that. We're not going to have that I, I mean, I remember we were literally stunned and shocked at how angry people were that we ended season one with the hatch, but without any sort of payoff and that people had to, you know, sit for four months with no answer to that. And it was like, well, shouldn't this be okay? But people were angry about it. And I think that kind of provoked us to participate more in the discussions in subsequent seasons. Because you didn't have what we think of now as interactivity with showrunners on Twitter and Facebook. None of that stuff was there when you guys started it. And Twitter didn't start until near the end of the show. So there was no hashtagging of episodes. There was no formal, let's all live tweet this as it's happening. You guys used your engagement from the fuselage and the engagement of the creativity, which we were talking about with the transmedia of the show, which was so interesting, is that you were so behind. What are these things that we can do that keep people happy over the summer with the ARG? and then planning out San Diego's to be this event, you know, and things yeah, dovetailed like off of those. Broadway they shows. were, yeah. <laughs> you know, had actors coming out and things like that. And when you have that, do you think Lost would have had the kind of warmth and, as you said, community that you saw at that event if the traditional social media that we have today was part of it? I mean, it's almost like there's a sweetness to a degree at the beginning that built yeah. and then at the end, as you said, kind of had the inklings of where fandom could go because there was kind of a a little bit of control on how you guys parsed out what you wanted to parse out? I mean, that's a good question. And I worry about it because I think that people want to participate. But if you participate by saying, oh, I love the show, it's a very benign participation that doesn't really make a ripple in the pond. But if you lob a witty criticism out there, that makes noise. That gets you acknowledged. And I worry that people that choose to participate that way kind of have an outsized voice 
and they don't fully represent the wide viewership of the show. And Lost was this huge mystery, and it was a yarn ball, and we had to make 121 episodes of it. And I think that sometimes people don't quite understand the storytelling pressures we were under. And when you look back and think that we did that, we were making, as Damon was saying, you know, he spent a couple of years making a handful of Watchmen episodes, or I've kind of done the same with Jack Ryan. It's like the fact that we were able to do this is crazy. And by the time we got to the end, there was no version of answering all the questions. There was no version of sort of coming up with an ending that would wrap up all the mysteries. So we chose to tell an emotional ending, one that we felt was sort of resolving kind of the larger question of what was in these characters' souls. You know, the idea that these characters were sort of lost in their lives and looking for redemption and reconciliation and some understanding of their greater purpose. And we knew that that would not be something that everyone would love. But we were on, I think, the beginning edge of the kind of trolling that exists now. Damon was saying before, we walked away at the end of the show, like we have Emmy nominations and TCA awards. And then there's this kind of turn that happened due to the outsized voices in some ways, I think, of the people who were negative about it that kind of distorted all of that. Yes. And I don't think there's real clarity as to if you were to actually do some sort of accurate poll, how many people liked it or how many people hated it. Honestly, I don't know. Look, there are metrics by which we can measure success. One of those metrics is what the critics are saying. One of those metrics is what the fans are saying. One of those metrics is awards. And one of those metrics is overall ratings. And you sort of look at Game of Thrones. And we're two weeks before the Emmys right now as we're recording this. I'd bet anybody in this room that Game of Thrones is going to win the drama series Emmy. And is it just being given to it because, no, it's won multiple Emmys over the years. It's going to get it for its final season. And yet the pop culture sphere, because there is a petition that was not signed by a million fans. Who knows how many of them were bots or the same person or whatever. But the culture has decided Game of Thrones final season was overtly problematic. And obviously this strikes very close to home. I do want to say something along the sort of more optimistic tip of stan culture, which is different than fan culture. And what I'll say is that we went to Comic-Con, and I can't remember if this was season three or season four, but at this point we're in Hall H now, and mm-hmm. it was a big deal. You guys were it. You changed it. Right. There was no television before you and The Walking Dead went into Hall H. You opened up TV to Hall H. There was also like sort of a rule in Hall H where everybody in that room was a lost fan. It wasn't like a thousand people who were waiting for the panel after us. And so we go in there. And we come out and we do our normal shtick, but then we would always do fan Q&A. And sometimes we'd have a plant that was part of our gag. But a lot of times we didn't know what anyone's going to say. And then one year, this guy, the very first guy up to the microphone, just kind of lets us have it. I can't remember what it was he was saying, but he was frustrated that we were making it up as we went along and that the show had wasted all this time in his life, etc. But he was wearing a Dharma jumpsuit. <laughs> and, and he was the first person in line, mm-hmm. which basically meant he had waited like seven hours yeah. to get mm-hmm. into the position to be the first one in that mic. And I think that a lot of people on the internet, you can't see that they're wearing their Dharma jumpsuits as they're the hurling context. hate at you. Yeah. And so, you know, I can say that the Jets are the worst football team in the history of football teams. <laughs> I said it this past Sunday because <laughs> they were up 16 nothing, but they missed the extra point in the first quarter. And I turned to my wife and I said, they're going to lose 17 16. Uh. And they did. And I said, I hate the Jets and I'm never, ever watching the Jets again until next Sunday. <laughs> but I did all this wearing a Jets jersey. Yeah. Right. And I'm a Jets fan. And if anybody on the Jets was like, fuck Damon, mm-hmm. he's not a true fan, I'd be like, like, you don't get to tell me what I am. And Nussbaum infamously took me to task for saying that you're not a true fan of Lost or not a fan of Lost if all you do is make us eat shit. And I've really changed my thinking on it. Mm-hmm. And I think the toxicity is Twitter. Yeah. Like, because our brains know that if we tweet, that was a great
great episode of Game of Thrones last night, you'll get like eight likes. But if you say, here's 19 reasons that last night's episode of Game of Thrones ruined the entire series, you're going to get hundreds of likes. And your brain starts to literally generate dopamine based on you hating on something. Then that's what you're going to do. But all the people who signed that petition love Game of Thrones. They love it. And we can't forget that that's where it all comes from. And I will say this. I'm curious, Carlton, because you and I, I don't know. Carlton and I don't speak unless we're on a podcast. <laughs> unless you're on a podcast. But, no, no. Yeah. But like in all the time, Lost has been over now for almost a decade. No one has ever come up to me, not a single person and said, I really didn't like Lost or I feel like you wasted my time. There's been a couple of interviews that got a little bit testy where someone's like, you know, I think you were making it up as you went along or you didn't answer enough questions. But those are people in a professional environment. So no one has ever said it to my face, which leads me to believe that it's greatly magnified by the anonymity of the internet. And I refuse to accept that our fandom is bad. I love the Lost fandom. I've just had too many overwhelmingly positive interactions. You can talk about what happens when you go with Giacchino to those things, but it's like, it's all love. First of all, I think we did speak once besides on a podcast, (laughs) just to clarify that. And I had my banjo. Um, But I completely concur with that. I mean, whenever anybody comes up to me, they're always very positive about the show. And it's funny because I actually remember I ran into George R. R. Martin at an event about a year after the show and confronted him because he had really trolled on the ending of the show. And I'm like, hey, I'm one of the two guys that did that. Please tell me to my face. Mm -hmm. And he kind of backed down immediately. And I said to him, you know, wait until Game of Thrones ends. Why don't you see what it's going to be like? I don't like to say that I was prophetic, but I was prophetic. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of ironic that he's kind of whining about how he's been treated when he, with that sort of shield of anonymity, was lobbing bombs at us. Let me just throw a little bit more context into what Carlton just said, particularly as it relates to George, which is, A, when you told me that you did that, I was like, you're my hero because I would never, (laughs) you know, it was devastating what he said, especially because we are big fans of his. But the other part of it is there's no part of us that wished, oh, you'll see. No. We want Game of Thrones to have a great ending. And we're not here to talk about Game of Thrones ending, but I watched that final season and it's like, whatever story quibbles you want to have with it as to why characters made certain decisions or whether it feels right. Those are all fair, but like that shows a miracle. I would just say, like, if you haven't watched it, you need to watch the two hour making of the the final season. Because when you see the people who made that show, there's a dude who like makes the snow. The level of love and passion that they put into that show is like, again, talk about the creative decision making, but this is another thing that's sort of like made with love. And what I would say to George R. R. Martin, with all due respect, is let's separate what Dave and Dan did from what George did. Mm -hmm. Dave and Dan actually ended their show. George, let's have a conversation when you end your story, because I don't think you have the guts to do it. That's why you've had writer's block for the last seven years. We didn't have to end our show. Carlton and I could have walked away in season. Yeah, the first conversation we had with Steve McPherson was he said, 10 years. Yeah, come back to us after 10 years. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about it after 10 years. The first conversation was, you're fired. We're going to get someone else to run the show. We're never going to end the show. Then it was, we'll end it after 10 years. And we wanted to end it after four. We settled for six because we felt it was better to end it. They negotiated hard against it. People don't remember in 2007 when we were having this conversation. TV shows never ended on a schedule. They just were like the Pony Express. You'd ride the horse until it dropped yeah, dead so underneath syndication money, yeah. baby. Yeah. Yeah. At least at 100 about. and keep running from there. And that's a question to even discuss is you can look now at the landscape of television. You are working in environments that cater to shorter seasons. You said 
guys, we have a premise that has a lifespan, and this is how we'd like to end it. And we're going to buck the broadcast system because it's what's best for the story. You wrestled ABC into agreeing with you, and that's not something that had been done before. I think we can look now at the television landscape and say there are shorter seasons. There are premise-based shows that have short lives that are only a couple of seasons long because of what you guys did back in the day. They couldn't see a European model. (laughs) That would be anything that they could do until you guys had the fight to do it. And then they went, oh, now that's all we see. Thank you for acknowledging that. I mean, I do feel like the fight that we fought did allow other people to kind of follow in our footsteps. And as a storyteller, when you tell a story, if you think about like the most elemental television show, which is like a closed-ended procedural, you narratively go A, B, C, and then you reset to A. Yes. I mean, what's really interesting, look at Breaking Bad, is when you get to tell the last letters in the alphabet, when you're doing X, Y, and Z. And that's, I think, why it's so compelling when you can tell a story with a beginning, middle, and end, because the end is cool. And those things that you get to do at the end are really dramatic. I would say that killing off main characters was something that we did that was kind of, they went crazy with the idea that we were going to actually do that. But we would always talk about how, like, if you saw, you know, David Caruso on CSI Miami, somebody put a gun to his head, you know, they're not shooting him because he's the star of the show. <laughs> exactly, so no fear. there was this sort of sense of false jeopardy. And as we started talking about it, Damon and I were like, no, we have to actually kill some characters so that you really feel that the jeopardy is real because we all are so habituated to watch watching television and we have this sort of idea of the way these stories unfold. And if we don't challenge that assumption, for instance, we'll never have the same intensity. It was happening in the cable space because we were obsessed with The Sopranos and David Chase announced that he was going to be ending The Sopranos. I always laugh about this, but it's like when we announced that Lost was going to end after six seasons, that happened midway through season three. It was amusing to me because it's sort of like, guys, just so we're clear, the show could still be canceled at any moment. (laughs) I mean, to that point, Heroes actually premiered when we were in our third season. And everyone was like, Heroes is fucking awesome. Why can't you be more like Heroes? Heroes answers its mysteries. They wrap it up all in one season. And we're like, okay, let's talk next year about Heroes. And the fact of the matter is, is Lost actually outlived heroes, even though they didn't start until the third year because they burned through their story. And so there's no right way to do this. I look at the broadcast landscape, a show like The Good Place, which I love, and full disclosure, Mike Schur is a very close friend, but I don't know anything about what's going to happen on The Good Place. I just adore it. And it started breaking through, really, in terms of audience and ratings and zeitgeist, right around the time that he was like, and we're ending it. And I'm not entirely sure that those two things are disconnected. If we had not announced the ending of the show when we had, I'm not sure we ever would have made it out of the third season. And we certainly couldn't have made, in my opinion, what was arguably our best episode, which was the season three finale, which clearly was like, this show is now rocketing towards an endgame. These guys are off the island now. It was sort of like, you had to know when Sawyer and Jin and Michael and Walt get on the raft at the end of season one, your brain is telling you, this isn't going to work. (laughs) But for the first time, you're like, oh no, now we can do that. Honestly, it was great that you ended it because a lot of it was about loss and distance and pain and all that stuff. But it was so beautifully told, especially at the end. But I think one of the things I love about the show is that the episodes were constructed as episodes of TV. You both have been in the industry a while. Has that gone away? If so, I'm just kind of sad about it. 
We were very rigorous about how we constructed episodes, and we were very conscious of trying to make episodes entertaining. People have asked, wouldn't it have been better if Lost was on HBO? And I think our answer is always no. I mean, we actually built the episodes around the six-act structure of television. We wrote the act breaks out on the board. We had columns, and we were always searching for what's the episode ending? What are the act breaks? You know, what is the incredible teaser that starts the episode? Behind all the crazy stuff we were doing, there was sort of a rigorous application of structure to the making of these episodes. And we would not rest until we actually felt like we had act outs and episode outs that were really great. I think we devoted a lot of attention to that craft. And to that end, certainly there were exceptions to this rule, but they were rare, which is that in addition to everything that Carlton just said, the first thing that we would say is, okay, whose episode is this? This is a Saeed episode. Okay, let's start with this flashback story. And those were always the easiest to break because they actually had beginning, middles, and ends. You know, it's sort of like they ended up being serialized to some degree because you had to sort of understand and they're told out of sequence. So this is before Jack was married and this Mm -hmm. is after and this this is when Julie Bowen is still in the wheelchair and you have to kind of orient yourself. But when you're first sort of diving in there and doing those character introductions or telling the story of how Hurley won the lottery, as Carlton always described them, these like little New Yorker short stories. So we'd start there and we'd do that in five or six beats. And then you'd say like, okay, so now what's happening to Saeed on the island? The basic formula certainly of season one was they made a mistake in their past. The island is now giving them a shot at redemption. Will they make the same mistake or will they evolve? Sometimes Mm -hmm. they do. Sometimes they don't. And so that sort of fastidious attention to how we were going to break story, that gave it its sort of episodic structure. I love shows that I can binge, you know, shows that have serialized structure like Stranger Things or even like Chernobyl or When They See Us. Those shows are heavily serialized. The episodes themselves, they have clear demarcation points as to when they end, but then Netflix is like, the next one's going to start in three seconds. So you're like, I don't really even have a concept of the episode anymore. But a show like Mad Men has always, to me, had very definitive episodic structure. They didn't end with cliffhangers. The next episode of Mad Men could start three weeks later, but it always felt like it was starting a new story. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's sort of like, we had a continuing story arc. Lost was obviously heavily serialized. But the idea of kind of saying every episode is like now Sawyer's the star in this one. We were always searching for this idea of like, how do we make the flashback and the present day story have resonance, thematic resonance? So if Sawyer is going to go off and kill a boar on the island, then how does that relate to a flashback story about his, you know, hunt for the person who's responsible for his parents' death? The original Sawyer. The original (laughs) Sawyer, yeah. You know, I think that you have to do the work. And I mean, we, if you kind of went through the amount of time we spent putting stories up on the board, repitching them, readjusting them, outlines, notes on outlines, drafts. And then there was always like one or two nights a week where Damon and I would be at the office till one or two in the morning, eat food out of takeout cartons, and we would watch Jeopardy. Watch Jeopardy, yeah. <laughs> And we would, we were viciously competitive about getting Jeopardy answers with each other. And then technically Jeopardy questions. <laughs> Sorry. Like technically. technically. In the form of a question. Okay. Yes, exactly. Yes. And then we'd be trading back even further penciled revisions back and forth until, you know, one or two in the morning. I mean, one of my favorite quotes is Akira Kurosawa when he was making Ron late in his life. He said, you know, I think I'm just now starting to figure out how to make movies. (laughs) And I think we really worked hard on the craft of making the show. 
You guys have made other television shows. You are currently making other television shows. Do you look at the lost experience for the good and the bad of it? And is there a through line for each of you about things that you've taken from that experience that have very much informed how you run shows now? Or how you conduct yourself as showrunners publicly or on the show itself. Yeah, even in setting your own boundaries now because that show did not respect your boundaries. take a lot more hikes in Switzerland? (laughs) (laughs) What's happening there? I mean, I don't know whether it's possible for shows to kind of be in the zeitgeist like I mean that was the moment in time you know now there's 500 shows and a lot of them just drop and people binge them and you know the conversation around television shows is much harder I mean it's great to be on HBO where they roll out shows week to week and I think that really contributed to Game of Thrones having mm-hmm. um, sure. ongoing Definitely. fandom I don't know I mean I think that the big lesson of Lost was that you could break a bunch of rules and people still watch your show and so I think I've tried in the things that I do to try to subvert it expectations to try to look past the obvious. I think the idea that we could do this show that was sort of foundationally built on all these things that people said you're not allowed to do to make a network show. And those are all the very things that made it work. That's something that I try to carry forward in the other things that I work on. I think that although I continue to and will always view Carlton as my peer and my partner, at first he was my mentor Mm -hmm. and in some regards still is and was my boss. So you had created three television shows before Lost even happened, not to mention the shows that you worked on that you didn't create. And Lost was my first, not the first show that I worked on, but the first show that I created. And again, it was like, I've told the story before, but it's worth telling here on the anniversary, which is the show premieres on September 22nd. And that night, we all go over to JJ's house to watch the live broadcast. And there's this guy, Tom Sherman there, who was at the time an executive at ABC, but was in the midst of starting to go and work for Bad Robot. And he kind of pulled Carlton and I aside. And JJ may or may not have been there. I can't remember. And he was sort of like, so we have some preliminary data, like expectations as to what number the show is going to do. If you guys can just pull like a low three in the demo and get like 8 million eyeballs on the show, you'll drop 10% in the second week, but hopefully you can grip the audience. You'll probably get a back nine. And I remember when he said that to me, I was sort of like, I don't want a back nine. Carlton had just came on and we were about to start making Raised by Another, the eighth or ninth hour of the show is a Claire flashback. And I was just like, I still have to go in tomorrow and write that. We have to break that episode (laughs) no matter what happens. And at six in the morning, the next morning, my phone rang. As soon as I heard it ring, I was like, this is going to be good news because people don't call you to to say like the show (laughs) bombed. And it was Tom Sherman. And he was like. And it was before telemarketers. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) He was like, the show did like a 7.4 in the demo and had like 18 million million. viewers. Mm -hmm. And I started crying. And I came into the office that day because we had to work (laughs) and everybody was, I always mispronounce this word, ebullient. 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 Yes. They were happy. I don't really use that. They weren't just happy. They were this other word. Ecstatic. Ecstatic. No, they were ebullient. And I was just like, I have to put on like my leadership face and not (laughs) terrify them. But when I got into Carlton's office, I was able to openly weep. And there were just all these muffins in there. So People many were just muffins. fucking sending us all these muffins for our success. And I was there surrounded by muffins going like... Do we have to keep fucking doing yeah. this? Do we have to do this? <laughs> and Carlton... But like, this yes. is the part of the story that I don't tell often enough, which is Carlton looked at me and he said, Damon, this never happens. I need you to know it's okay that you're feeling this way. And I subsequently quit the show and like left and went to two bunch palms, like in the movie, the player for like two weeks before rejoining it. But before any of that happened, he was like, you don't understand it now, but what's happening is incredibly special. And hopefully you'll have perspective on that one day. 
it was very hard to even gain that perspective while we were doing it. It always felt like we had a tiger by the tail, and it didn't help that we were constantly being threatened. From the word go, people were like, you better not disappoint me. Critics were saying it. Our yeah. bosses were saying it. My wife was saying it. Well, we like, said it nicely. No, we didn't. No, we didn't. It was sort of like we just started dating, and on like the third date, you're just like, do not break Laying my heart. Laying down the law. And so I was like, okay, oh, we won't, we won't. But now I'm able to like really realize this was a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence. Again, just to reiterate, I, I just don't want to replicate it. And right. mm-hmm. I think that the boldest thing that any artist can do in any medium of art whether they're a musician or a sculptor or a television writer, is to continue to do what you love. Don't just, like, make a concept album to be weird. Continue to do what you love, but try not to repeat yourself. Mm -hmm. Try to zero in and do something in a different way. And the only way to do that is to partner with different people. Me partnering with Parada Mm -hmm. is what resulted in The Leftovers because he was an entirely different person. And doing an adaptation of Watchmen, which is this thing that really changed my entire life and there are echoes of it in Lost and everything that I've done, but to kind of take it on is like I've partnered with that text and an entirely different group of people. And while Carlton and I, we talk about it all the time, I know that we're going to collaborate on something again. We're going to make something. They call it content now. Mm -hmm. It's not a TV show. (laughs) Right. You can watch whatever this content. Is. And it won't have lost in front of it, but I feel like we had to go off and do this other stuff or else we would just try to play the hits. Because when I go and see the Stones, I don't want to hear the shit off of the new album. I want right. to hear Sympathy for the Devil and I want to hear Satisfaction. And you can play Steel Wheels. I'll let you get away with Steel Wheels, but you're, you're pushing it. And so I don't want to play the hits, yes. you know, and I don't want that to seem arrogant. No. It's really in honor and service of the show that we made together. I share Damon's sentiments. I mean, I really do look forward to the fact that, you know, we will do something together again and all of the journey in between will inform that in a really positive way. Well, we'll bring that to a close now, but Watchmen is in October that Damon's bringing to the world. Regina King stars in it, and it's pretty damn awesome. We've both seen it. So, yes, really fantastic. And then you, my friend, have Lock and Key is really exciting. I'm really proud of it. I mean, it's going to come on Netflix early next year, and it was a hard thing to crack, and it's been in development with various people since 2008. Yeah, I'm seeing a pilot at San Diego. I've I've already seen the pilot, that other pilot, which we now decide just doesn't exist. No, 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 no. (laughs) I want to see it. I can't wait. Thank you. And we've got the second season of Jack Ryan coming, too, as well, with you Mm -hmm. and Graham, right? So uh, I remember uh, when we were on Colony doing a podcast, you were in Morocco on that thing. (laughs) And that's taking you all over the world. But it's really special to both Mo and I that you guys were here. We can't thank you enough. We know Lost is near and dear to us. It's near and dear to you. And we know it's not a small thing that you guys appeared to talk about it with us. And we really are honored about that. And we appreciate the conversation. Well, thanks for having us. And, you you know, you guys, I feel we're there with us every step of the way. And so, as we were telling you off the air, Mm -hmm. whatever a podcast is, but it's sort of like a lot of people want us to keep talking about the show. And it's not that we want to, you know, turn people down, but it's sort of like we don't really have anything new to say. And we acknowledge that these anniversaries are fairly arbitrary, but because it was you guys, it felt like I would talk with them about the show, even if we weren't (laughs) actually podcasting it. Just having muffins. Having muffins. I can probably eat muffins. <laughs> well, thank you, Damon Thanks. and Carlton, for being here. It's a huge thrill that you guys have been able to chat and more than anything that you guys are making television still and that we both have that to look forward content. to. And, and content. content. All that content. Yes. In the meantime, I'd like to thank my podcasting team, co-host Maureen Ryan, 
producer, composer, and editor, Paul Terry, mixer and master, Dave Draper, and Village Workspaces podcasting studio in Beverly Hills for hosting us this week. Thank you so much for being with us. And with that, see you in another life, brother. Wait, was was this the finale? Yes, yeah. this is the finale. What do you think George R. R. Martin's going to say? <laughs> I don't think he's going to like it. Oh, boy. <laughs> 